0: bring my reading glasses, but I'm also a guy of redundancy, and that's why I keep a pair up here. These are my cool, lightly yellow and black killer bee glasses. Can you see the yellow tinge to them? No, you can't. you got to be up close to see it. So. They are. They are. So, let's ask God's blessing in this time. Lord, we're grateful for this time. How refreshing it is to come into your presence. Lord, how wonderful it is to fellowship with my my brothers and sisters in the Lord and Lord just icing on the cake is studying your word and the hope Lord that your word has for us. Lord we ask that you'd bless this time now speak to our hearts open our eyes help us to live a life Lord that brings glory and honor to you and it's in your mighty name Lord Jesus that we pray. Amen. You know last week was kind of a I remember years ago when I started as a pastor, talking to my pastor from Calvary Chapel, Oceanside. He was the one that planted the church. His name was Bob Dietz. Uh, after five or six years of ministry, stepped down from ministry and, and uh, pastored a little bit for a bit. And then also, too, went and planted and established a Calvary Chapel in Moscow, which I think is still going to these days. Uh, I mean going to this point all these years but once they came back to the United States he got out of ministry and hasn't been in ministry since. But I remember in the early days of the ministry at times as I would study God's word prepare and teach one of the things a piece of advice he gave me uh, that I've always thought about is you know there's portions in God's word that can be very I want to say, I want to say pointed they can be convicting they can be strong and, and again, too, because we go through all of God's Word, it's not like I get to pick and choose you know, what kind of a message I'm going to give. But there are times that when we go through God's Word, it, it should convict our hearts. And I feel like last week was part of that as well. And yet the second part of this chapter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, picking up in verse 13, we're only going to look at six verses when I read this this is one of those sections of scripture and again to getting back to what Bob said to me he just says, you know as much as possible he loves to give a message that encourages that gives hope and this is hopefully even if I don't give a good message because again I didn't have time to read like I like to yesterday when I was sitting in the lobby I'm just kidding um, God's Word gives hope and that's the intent here that the Apostle has when he addresses this particular issue He is telling the Thessalonians, he is addressing something, he begins in verse 13, and really if you read the first half of the chapter up to verse 12, you really, there is a very clear break, and beginning in chapter 4, I mean, beginning in verse 13, and going on into chapter 5, I mean, those... Bible guys that not only decided where the verse divisions would be, but decided where the chapter divisions would be, they could have easily made this chapter 5, verse 1. And they could have gone into chapter 5, probably 10 verses in, and made that end of chapter 5, you know, and beginning in verse like 10 or 11, that could be chapter 6 of First Thessalonians, if they wanted to. Because again, too, it addresses something. It addresses a problem that had existed in the church. And the Apostle Paul begins in verse 13 by saying, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. I would not have you to be ignorant. I mean, I think sometimes ignorance comes in two ways. There's the ignorance that comes because you don't have a knowledge. Nobody ever told you about that. And actually, I even bring this up about ignorance because there's six times in the New Testament that expression is used. And it seems like every time it's used, there's an emphasis, there's an importance to it. And when Paul writes this, he's addressing some false teaching had crept into the church. And the false teaching was this. There were those that were striking fear in the hearts of believers, probably young believers, believers that lack immaturity or an understanding of God's word. And many times I think those that, again, too, are, are doing that, they're, they're taking advantage of maybe somebody's ignorance that has come as a result of a lack of maturity. It's not a willful thing. It's not like these... Again, too, you know, as we've gone through 1 Thessalonians, we've seen that the church was established after just three weeks of ministry there. And because of persecution, the Apostle Paul had to leave. And he left this fledgling church basically to survive on their own with probably some that stayed behind and helped with them and established the leadership. But the bottom line is is that there there were those that came in and they recognized an opportunity to teach, you know, something that was on their agenda. And I see that happen all the time. I see that happen in the church. I see that happen with young believers. Sometimes there are those that want to come alongside and and, and let me tell you something. And they'll share it under the guise of, again, too, well, you you really don't know or understand God's word the way I do or or, or the way our special group teaches. And, again, anytime anybody's trying to show you something uh, and take advantage of, of, again, too, your ignorance or your lack of maturity, they're basically, uh, again, too, they've got an agenda. And that was the case with Gnosticism. That was the case with other false teachings and doctrines that exist in the early church and again to still exist in the church today. And there were those that were teaching and it had to do in reference to those that died. So we have a hope that when we die we're going to rise again. But the other thing, the other great hope that governed the early church was the return of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 1, when Jesus ascends into heaven in the presence of of above 500 people that saw him at that point, and as they're gazing up into the sky and they see these two angels and the angels communicate to them that this same Jesus that you've seen ascend into heaven is going to come back the same way. Throughout the gospel, Jesus speaks of his return as well. There are a number of places where he addresses that. And the hope of the early church was if we die, we know we're going to be resurrected. If we're alive, we know that Jesus is coming back. And again, too, we want to be busy preaching the gospel, getting people saved, so that when Jesus comes back and he calls his bride, the church, up, the church is ready, and there is an expression or a word that's used called the rapture. It's not found here in the Greek. It is a... Uh, an, uh, another, and I'm trying to think of it. It's, a, a, I believe, a Latin word. The Greek and the word, that, uh, the word in the Greek that we're going to see here, where we're caught up to be him. The Greek word is harpazo, but it means to just be violently taken up, and that's what the apostle Paul is going to talk about. And and the thing is, the teaching that had come into the church was, well, okay, yeah, we're waiting for the return of Jesus. We're waiting for the rapture. But if you die before that happens, false teaching, if you die before that happens, you're going to miss it. You're just going to stay in the ground. And that's not true. And so Paul says, I would not have you to be ignorant. There's an ignorance that comes because, again, you haven't been taught that. You didn't know that. But then there's an ignorance that comes that's willful. I don't want to know. You know, sometimes people don't want to read God's word. Or they don't want to know, they, want, they don't want to be accountable for God's word. I have encountered that as well. As much as, uh, again, to uh, that I as a pastor or even as a believer in Jesus Christ try to encourage other believers to read God's word. I know sometimes, uh, again, to for a pastor, my perspective is a little bit different because uh, I, I don't want to feel like I'm nagging you you know, as a shepherd or as a pastor, read God's word, read God's word, read God's word. And then the beginning of the year comes around. It's just like, you know, all these programs that come out, read God's word in one year and go through the daily walk or whatever type of Bible program. And again, too, I'll quote and I'll tell you how many chapters are in the Bible. So let's just see how over the years, how many times you've heard me say this. How many chapters are there in the Bible? Chapters of the Bible. Because I'll break it down and... I'll break it down, tell you how many chapters you need to read a day in order to get through the Bible in a year. I say it all the time. At least I thought I did. Does anybody remember? Four chapters? Four chapters a day, but how many chapters? Now you're going to do your math, but you're you're close. Really? See, this tells me that I have to say this even more. 1189 everybody say it with me 1189 next time I say how many chapters in the Bible you say 1189 <laughs> if you read three chapters a day and on the fourth day read the fourth chapter and just do that in four day cycles in a year you'll get through 1189 chapters and I know it you know I'm just always trying to push it. read God's Word so you know what God's Word says But there are those that, again, too, their ignorance comes not as a result of not being taught, but their ignorance comes as a result of being willful. They don't want to know. And I've heard Christians say that to me. Because the Bible says, because Jesus says, to whom much is given, much more will be required. And then they apply some type of human reasoning or logic that, well, if Jesus says, to whom much is given, much more will be required, there's a, a greater requirement that will be placed upon me for knowing what God's Word says. So if I don't know it, then God can't hold me accountable, so I'm not going to read it. I've had Christians say that to me. I've had them say, actually say, i'm not going to read the bible because i don't want to be accountable really you want to go through this spiritual walk with god ignorant and paul says i, I don't want you to be ignorant and i think again too i, I believe the greek word there is is ignoramus you know <laughs> not knowing that. i don't want you to be ignoramuses He says, concerning them which are asleep. Concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. He doesn't say that you shouldn't sorrow. I mentioned recently the number of funerals that I've attended. And, and, and it comes and goes in kind of waves. And I've gone because, again, some of the, the funerals that I've attended were friends of mine or their parents that I knew growing up in either grade school or high school, and I just go there, again, to show my love and support for them, but also, to comfort and opportunities maybe to share the gospel with some. And the thing is, at a funeral, people, things have changed, though, too. Because it used to be that people would wonder, I, you know, about, what happens after a person dies. Wonder what happens to a person's soul after they die. Or wonder about a particular person that they're at a funeral with. I remember too, lately as I've attended some of these funerals, and the thought that has come to my mind is something that Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. He says it's better to go into the house of mourning, and he's talking about you know, mourning or grieving over the death of somebody that has died. He says, it's better to go into the house of mourning than to go into the house of feasting. Because he says, when you go into the house of mourning, you're considering what happens to man and what happens to every man. It's the end of all men. And it's, again, too, people reflect upon that, but the question many times that people are weighing in their mind, their heart, they think, okay, is that person going to heaven or is that person suffering in hell those are really the only two choices i I don't mean to be you know for some people they take great offense at that too but again too things have kind of changed and there's so much false teaching out there that has inundated the christian landscape and even the non-christian landscape the non-believing landscape and it's as if Everybody's going to heaven. God is a God of love, and and anybody that dies, you know, we know that they're with God now. And and yes, people are grieving, but they're thinking, "Oh, my loved ones with the Lord." And, and here's the thing: the Apostle Paul is going to set a few things straight because the the thing that's important is whether or not a person has a belief in Jesus Christ. I don't want you to be ignorant concerning them that are asleep that you sorrow not even as those which have no hope for the person who's placed their trust in jesus christ and has passed away or fallen asleep in the lord as the new, uh, old king james calls it that person is in god's presence that's the hope of salvation it's found in a person it's found in jesus christ what he has done he paid the price for our sins on the cross and that's the only hope of salvation the only one it's it, there is no other way and again too well you know That doesn't seem very loving. Yes, it it was a supreme act of love on God's part that he would send his son. It was the supreme act of love that God, the Son, Jesus Christ, would willingly go to the cross for me. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to pay the price. And even in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he agonized over it, Father, if there is any other way, take this cup from me. But if not, then let your will be done. And he's willing to submit to the will, to the plan of salvation that God the Father had planned since the foundation of the earth to redeem fallen man. I mean, that's the great love that God has. The problem is we try to define what we think love is. Or we try to define what we think or how God should demonstrate his love. God is God. We're just... Belly button lint. I mean, we're nothing. We are nothing. But Paul says that if we believe, and again, now he's addressing this particular issue, this particular issue of the rapture, of those being gathered into the Lord's presence. And he, he's doing this to not only educate them, but he's doing this to provide hope. Because again, too, that is a wonderful thing that when a person is grieving over someone that has passed away and a person that knows the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, even though it really, I think, I've seen this, I've experienced it myself personally, even though it can be a difficult time, there is a great sense of hope or comfort knowing that I will see that person that I love again around the throne of Jesus Christ. David, as he is praying for his infant child that both him and Bathsheba had had together as a result of David's adulterous relationship with her, as the child is struck sick and is at the point of dying, David is fasting, he is praying, he is hoping that God will be merciful and not impute his sin on this child, but the child dies And David's servants, you know, when he gets word that the child has died, and, you know, they they, they come into the presence of the king and they see him just, just vexed and mourning and grieving and praying and crying out to God over this poor, you know, child that is suffering as a result of his sin and praying that God would be merciful. But, you know, when they're coming to tell David, you can stop praying the child's died. They're just standing there at the entryway, and they're actually afraid to tell David. I mean, he's the king. He, He could say, he's dead? Okay, so are you. Thanks for the bad news. I mean, they're worried, but when he sees them kind of conversing or senses their presence, he just asks the question, is the child dead? And they said, yes, he is. And he doesn't say anything. He gets up from off his knees or bowed down before the Lord in prayer. He washes up he changes his clothes he asks the cook to make him a meal and he goes into the presence of god to pray and to worship and they don't understand this because they're thinking if he was so grieved when his child was on the point of death how is it how we thought he would just fall apart come undone unraveled by the news And they ask him so, why, you know, why didn't you continue to mourn and why didn't you continue to fast and why didn't you continue to grieve the way that people grieve when someone that they love is gone? And he says, while he was still alive, I had hoped that maybe the Lord would be merciful, but now that he's gone, there's nothing, I'm paraphrasing, he says, but there's nothing I can do to change that. He says he's never coming back to me but the day will come when I will go to him and that was a hope that David had in the resurrection even in the Old Testament and Paul says in verse 14 if we believe that Jesus died and rose again he lays that foundation first that's the most important belief a person can have a a belief in Jesus Christ but the reason why I believe in Jesus Christ is because he died and he rose again. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He lays out the gospel very clearly. It was a physical death that Jesus suffered. It was a physical resurrection that Jesus performed, experienced, however you want to put it. And Paul says that's what we believe. In John chapter 11, and again, to just the background is, is that Jesus gets word that Lazarus is sick and dying. And Jesus specifically makes the choice to stay behind with the disciples. And even then they're kind of wondering, okay, how come Jesus isn't going to heal Lazarus? We know how much he loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, brothers, a brother and two sisters. We know how close they are, but... And Jesus deliberately waits, and then when he finally, you know, comes, Lazarus has already been dead for four days. And Mary and Martha are grieving the Jewish family and those that are close and brothers and sisters that are, uh, that again, too, uh, that are trusting in Jesus Christ. They're trying to console Mary and Martha. And, and when, when Jesus shows up in John chapter 11, it says, Martha says in verse 21, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother had not died. And again, too, that's, you know, her hope was, Jesus, I'm sending you word now so you can heal my brother. And she says, if you'd have been here, he wouldn't have died. You know, and again, too, she's grieving, and, but at the same time, she's blaming Jesus, maybe, that he wasn't there to meet the need that she had. But she goes on to say, but I know that even now whatsoever you will ask of God, God will give it to you. And Jesus said unto her, your brother will rise again. Your brother will rise again. You know, I don't think, and it almost sounds in verse 22 that what Martha is saying, I even know now that whatever you ask God, God will give it to you. I don't think she's thinking about, ask God that he would raise my brother Lazarus right now. Because it's clear from what she's going to say next. I think what she is thinking is if you ask God to comfort, to take away the sting of death from us, or to provide some measure of comfort that God would answer that prayer. It's just my own opinion. But Jesus says, your brother will rise again in verse 23. And Martha said, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. See, that leads me to believe that she's still not thinking about right now. Now, you know the rest of the story. You know what Jesus does, and you know that he calls Lazarus out from the grave. But again, too, Martha is thinking about the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. We believe that. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 14. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again you know, that he's risen from the grave, and, and and he's basically telling Martha that he himself is the resurrection, and through belief in him, if you're dead, you will rise again. You shall live. This is interesting. Verse 26 has always been interesting to me, because for, for me, there is something that Jesus says that somehow, again, too, in my mind, as a, a young believer, and then as a believer, throughout my, my walk with the Lord, I was just like, okay, what is Jesus talking about here in verse 26? John chapter 11, verse 26, he says, And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Believest thou this? And I suppose that there's been ways of interpreting that and saying, well, if you believe in Jesus and you're alive, you will never die. And I think, again, too, we think it probably maybe we spiritualize it and we try to say, well, you know what, we've, live now over 2,000 years since Jesus ascended into heaven, or about close to you know, 2,000 years, yeah, over 2,000 years. And there have been believers in Jesus Christ that have died. And, and again, too, many times the way that it's interpreted is, well, they didn't really die. They're alive in the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's true. But I don't think Jesus is actually talking about that. But I think that's part of the reason why the early church was thinking that when Jesus comes back. And I think what Jesus is talking about here is the exception. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Because there is an exception. If you believe in Jesus and you die, you'll live again. Again, if that's the resurrection. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verse 50, and again to the whole chapter talks about the resurrection, the physical resurrection, the importance of the belief in a physical resurrection, that without the resurrection there is no forgiveness of sins. And in, in verse 50 he says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption behold I show you a mystery we shall not all sleep or die but we shall all be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye at the last trump for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible See, he's he's actually talking about those that are dead can we know that they're gonna rise incorruptible the rest of this chapter we're gonna see the same truth presented that even if a person has died in Christ before the return of Jesus Christ, when Jesus returns for his church, his bride, the church, and at the resurrection, those that have died over the last 2,000 years of church history, they're going to be raised up with a physical resurrection. But there's an exception here. And the exception is those that are alive when Jesus is returned. Right? I mean, not everybody's going you know, to be dead, and then Jesus raises them from the dead. We that are alive. And that's the point that Paul makes here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It says, But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. The trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying, and it is written, that death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the, the victory is only found in Jesus Christ. Verse 58: Therefore, my brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. When Jesus says there in John chapter 11 that He is the resurrection of the life, he that believes in Him. Though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he says, and whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. I think he's talking about that exception of his return. That those believers that are alive, we're not going to experience death. That that is the only, you know, the Bible says that it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. But again, too, there's only one exception to that. It's those that are alive when Jesus Raptures or calls his church his bride to be to himself. And again, you know, for those that either have died or for those of us that maybe, at times, have faced death. I know. I, I mean, I, I I don't like bringing this up because sometimes I feel like I bring it up too much. But I had a staph infection that nearly killed me, and it really did. It nearly killed me. And you think about that, and you think about where your hope and your trust is in. And again, too, even at that, facing death is thinking, I get to be with Jesus. I know my wife and my daughter are going to be grieved if I die. I know my family and friends and everybody that loves me would be grieved if I die. Yes, you would. I think you would, right? (laughs) I had a dear friend, Bill Waters. He's a Calvary Chapel pastor in Plainfield, Wisconsin. It's a little town. There were over a 1,000 people that showed up at his funeral service. They had to hold it at the high school gym in Plainfield, Wisconsin, which is not a big gym, but it was packed. I mean, I know, you know, again, too, I know. It's kind of good to have your faith tested at times. I suppose nobody wants to have it tested in that way. But it really is a test as to where your faith is if you're worried or fearful of what happens to you when you die then again too you need to know that if you've placed your trust in jesus christ you'll be with him eternally but if we're alive at the return of jesus christ we'll be caught up together with him and paul again to my point with john chapter eleven mary martha and the resurrection and jesus saying if you're alive you know, you'll never die. I think that that's what he's talking about. I th- but again, too, that's just my own opinion. I've never actually even heard that or seen that taught anywhere else. But for me, it reconciles what the scripture says there in First Corinthians chapter 15, and it reconciles the exception that there. Sometimes, yes, it's true. You know, there are exceptions to God's word. They're good exceptions. They're blessings. They're things that we have hope in. And Paul is going to talk about then that hope back in our passage. That if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Verse 15, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. We're not going to, and Old King James that uses that word, prevent but I believe it's we're not going to precede them we're not going to go up before God before them the dead in Christ the dead that have died placing their trust in Jesus Christ they're actually they get to rise first you know I I've, I've heard of some Calvary chapels and when we first got started we we started um with a bible study in our house and then from that point on we moved into a community center and and again to a Calvary Chapel movement is a kind of a unique thing and and back when we first got started back in 1981 sometimes it was just difficult to find a place for the church to meet and we met in community centers and but sometimes in the process i would check with schools and things like that you know and then at the pastor's conferences, you'd hear of Calvary chapels that were getting started in different places. And they give you great ideas as to, you know, once the church grows at a certain point, you know, you need a place to meet. You know, one of the things that had been thrown out and actually Calvary Chapel Oceanside had done this for a while, but we met in a, a, a synagogue, a Jewish synagogue, because they observed the Sabbath on Saturday. And so on Sunday mornings, the place was empty and free and this Jewish synagogue was more than happy to rent it to the church that was at, in, in Oceanside at the time so synagogues a great place to meet a church meet as a church a, a new church that's getting started but another place that again too was thrown out and I know Calvary Chapel that's in St. Cloud did this for a while but meeting in funeral homes because they have chapels and they've got pews and they've got sound systems and and again too you know I, I remember some people feeling kinda of weird about going to church there but I remember a pastor talking about it and he says hey you know what, we're at an advantage because if the rapture takes place while we're there, we'll know it just before everybody else because the dead in Christ are going to rise first and the rest of us can get ready. (laughs) He says there in verse 15, we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord will not precede them which are asleep. And verse 16 just tells us the actual, you know, chain of events that are going to take place you know on Wednesday mornings I think it's the first or not Wednesday mornings on Wednesdays at one o'clock on the first Wednesdays of the month what happens here in the Twin Cities sirens go off that's right it tests the emergency system warning system that the Twin Cities has and again too sometimes those sirens go off they're utilized to warn people about tornadoes or some type of national disaster that might take place or for people to take cover but it's funny because a lot of times on Wednesdays I hear that siren go off and it it sounds like a trumpet to me or a horn the other thing is when we lived in Edina for many years we lived close to train tracks that were there and I would hear all of a sudden a train go by every now and then and it would blow its horn to warn people that might be in an intersection or on the tracks to, you know, here comes the train. And for me as a believer, knowing that what's going to happen when Jesus raptures the church, you know, we always think about the trumpet of God, right? Always, in a sense, you know, sometimes we think, I can't wait to hear that trumpet sound, trumpet of God. But it's interesting because there's something else. I just noticed this this morning. For the first time after all these years, there's something that I should be listening for instead of a trumpet. It's a shout. A shout. The shout's going to come first. Verse 16, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. And so now, from now on, if I hear anybody shout, I suppose there's a difference between a scream and a shout, but it's, hey! You know, just... Is that you, Lord? (laughs) But it says, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. And then there's the voice of the archangel. I mean, there's two other warning signs that are going to take place. You know, loud things that draw attention to the fact that the rapture is taking place. It's not just the trumpet. The trumpet's the last of the three things that will take place. A shout, the voice of the archangel. It's interesting because John mentions the, the voice of the archangel or actually a voice calling him up into heaven in Revelation chapter 4. And this is after, you know, it's interesting. I love re- the book of Revelation when we get there. It's laid out so neatly for us to be able to study it because in, in chapter 1, verse 19 of the book of Revelation, there is an outline that is given to John as to how things are happening chronologically in the book of Revelation. Jesus tells John, write these things which you have seen. He's speaking of the present, or I'm sorry, of the past. The things that you have seen, the things which are, speaking of the present, past, present, and the things which shall be, Hereafter, the things that are going to take place in the future. The Greek word for the future there is metatauta. And in, beginning in chapter 4 then, after the seven letters in a sense have been written down to the seven churches that are located throughout Asia, it says in Revelation chapter 4 verse 1, and I, Revelation singular. We sometimes... I remember I used to refer it to it as the book of Revelations. <laughs> and, it, and again, too, I you know, a young believer. I didn't know. You know, she's like, Revelations. Well, I was in Revelations the other day, and there was a more mature Christian woman that was at Calvary Chapel, Santa Fe, and it just would get under her skin that I would say Revelations. So she would always correct me. She says, Revelation. It's just one revelation, one singular revelation, not many revelations. She's just like, does that bother you? Revelations, revelations, revelations. <laughs> okay, But now I do that. So, But it doesn't bother me. You can go and say revelations all you want. But in chapter 4, verse 1, John says, after this, that's the same Greek word, metatonta. This is the future now that he's talking about. And this is after he's talked about the churches, the seven churches in chapters 3 and 4. And the interesting thing is, is after... Chapter 4, you don't see the church mentioned again. That's because the church has now been brought into the presence of God. And John is going through kind of a step-by-step process of the things that are going to go through, that the church is going to go through during those seven-year period of tribulation and of God's wrapping up human history and of his judgment of this world. And after this, John says, I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven... And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me. Now that's what John hears, but that's not the rapture. But he says, he hears this voice saying, Come up hither, and I will show you things which will be hereafter. I'm sorry, that's the point, hereafter, metatonta, from this point on. By the word of the Lord, we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord will not precede those that are asleep. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Verse 17, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Knowing that is a great source of comfort. Knowing that anybody that has died in Christ Jesus is in his presence and that we will join them either when we die or when the Lord returns for us is a great source of comfort. Not knowing that, I think, can be a great source of anxiety. But here's the thing, too, and there are those that there's a lot of debate and different theological positions as to when the rapture and again when he says we're caught up the, I mentioned the Greek word is harpazo it means to just be snatched up violently it means like in first Corinthians chapter 15 it means to be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye I mean it's going to be instantaneous I mean think about the impact that this world will experience when the true believers in Jesus Christ suddenly vanish or gone I mean, I I think it's going to throw this world into a a state of disaster. And, And again, too, not because of the number of Christians that are in this world. I think, actually, there's probably a small number, a fraction of genuine believers in Jesus Christ in this world. Jesus says, you know, broad is the way that leads to destruction and many people are on it and straight and narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. And few people even find it. I mean, we like to think that we as as Christians are in great numbers, but I really think that we as believers in Jesus Christ are probably few in number. But even then, for the few in number that we are, think about the impact that will take place in this world. Hopefully, if we have been witnesses for Jesus Christ, it will cause those that are still alive to wonder, what happened to that? And again to, what's the world's population right now at? Somebody told me recently, seven billion. Seven billion. Uh, let's just say and again to, I think probably I might be a little generous, but you know let's just say, you know, one billion of the Earth's population is Christians, But, but again too, maybe it's, it's 500,000. I mean, 500 million. But let's say it was even smaller than that. I mean, I even think about as, you know, the Lord is communing with Abram and he is sending his two angels to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and and, and again too, Abram knows that his nephew lives there and he's hoping God's not going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because what if there's righteous people there Lord and he, he in a sense kind of says well God you're righteous how, how could you possibly destroy the righteous or judge the righteous with the wicked and he says if there's 50 righteous people there will you destroy it and he says if I find 50 people there no what about 40 no what about there and he works God all the way down to 10 and God says if there are 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah no I'll spare the city I mean, to me, that demonstrates it doesn't take a lot for the righteous judgment of God or for the influence that the righteous have in this wicked world that we're living in to avert the judgment of God. But the problem is, is when the angels get there, there aren't even 10. And even then, they're saved out of the city, out of the judgment of God, aren't they? I mean, again, some theological positions are that well, you know, the rapture isn't going to take place until the middle of the tribulation, three and a half years into the judgment of God. Or, or there are some that have a theological position the rapture doesn't take place till after the seven-year tribulation of God. And the interesting thing to me is that in Second Peter, Peter gives again to a great example of Lot who I'm talking about right now, but of Noah as well, of examples of the judgment of God, but God's ability to spare the righteous from judgment. And I believe that's why the rapture will take place before the tribulation. That's why I hold to a pre-tribulational view of the rapture. There's a lot of churches and there's a lot of, again to theology that have attacked this particular position because, oh, you know, God's going to use the the tribulation to refine his bride, the church. By the time the judgment of God has come, we're not talking about, there's no more time for refinement. God, you know, the the church has had 2,000 years to be refined. We're living in a day and age, again, too, where if you're not being refined by just what's going on in this world, three and a half years or seven years of God's (laughs) wrath is not going to refine you. The seven-year period of tribulation is the pouring out of God's wrath for a world that has rejected the love of Jesus Christ. And the way that God deals with them, the righteous, is he knows how to save them or spare them from the judgment that's coming. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. He says that there were false prophets among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you. He's talking about in the Old Testament And he says, who will privily or privately bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, the the false prophets, and it says, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. I mean, those that that believe in the truth, they're going to be the ones that are evil spoken of or bad mouthed about. And it says, and through covetousness they shall with feigned words make merchandise of you whose judgment, again to covet, I better get to the point I want to make here. So much, but it says, whose judgment now of a long time lingers not and their damnation slumbers not. Verse four, Second Peter Peter 2. For if God spared not the angels that sinned but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Verse 5, And God spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood of the world, on the, uh, of the ungodly. Verse 6, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making an example unto those that should live ungodly. In verse 7, And delivered just lot now, it doesn't mean just lot it means righteous lot <laughs> he delivered just lot no. anyway, righteous lot and his two daughters and his wife but you know his wife turned around in a longing way wanting to go back to this life that she had there in Sodom and Gomorrah she was turned into a pillar of salt but it says that he delivered just lot vexed with their filthy lifestyle or the filthy lifestyle of the wicked Here is the point then, verses 8 and 9. For that righteous man dwelling among them, seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knows how to deliver the ungodly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. Both Lot and Noah are examples of what God has done in the past and again what I believe God's word says he will do in the future. He is going to spare believers in Jesus Christ from the judgment that's coming. There's hope in that. I mean, Jesus, when he's talking about, again, two things that would mark the signs of these last days that we're living in. He says, you know, when you see these things begin to happen, Luke chapter 12, he says in verse 35, let your loins be girt about and your lights burning, and you yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord. When he will return from the wedding, when he comes and he knocks, that you may open unto him immediately. And he's going to go on to say, you know, when you see these things begin to happen, look up because your redemption's drawing near. Even with regards to what happens in the next elect- election. I guess my feeling is this world is not my home. I mean, as much as we as believers need to be a righteous influence in this world, the bottom line is, is, this world's not my home. And I think too many times, Christians, we try to make this world more comfortable or we're so worried about what's going to happen in this world. Now, well, there are things that we can change and there are things that we can't change. But the thing that's important is that we occupy until the return of Jesus Christ that we live with that hope. I'll just close with one more passage. And again, too, it's found in 1 John. And he is going to talk about the change that will take place. And he's going to talk about we don't know when this is going to happen. I mean, we know the times and the seasons. That's what Jesus said we would know. But in 1 John chapter 3, he says... Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knows us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, when he shall appear, basically when he comes back, when he shall appear, We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Uh, We will be transformed. We will be glorified in a moment. But this is what verse 3 says. And he and every man that has this hope of him, of his return, purifies himself even as he is pure. See, that's the thing. That's the bottom line. We don't know when Jesus is coming back, but there uh, uh, there is a purpose in not knowing. Because, again, if I knew, I'd write a book, sell it, make lots of money, and retire on it. No. There have been people that have written books, why Jesus is coming back in 1988. reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988. And, again, do they capitalize sometimes on people's fears? You know, we as Christians don't have to be afraid of the return of Jesus Christ. But we should live a life that reflects that. People say, oh, what about the last 2,000 years? Christians have thought that Jesus was coming. 1 Peter chapter 3 says, In the last days there will be scoffers saying, Where is the promise of his coming? I mean, I think church, this is believers and even non-believers. They thought, you you Christians have been walking around carrying those signs. The last days are at hand for for quite a few decades now. But the bottom line is, as if we knew... Or even if the world knew, what would they do? Well, you know, if Jesus is coming back and May 14th, you know, whatever day you want to, whatever year you want to pick, probably a lot of people would live a pretty sinful life right up until the day before. And then, oh, Lord, I'm really sorry for all my sins. Please accept me. I invite you to come into my heart. I believe you, Jesus. I believe Jesus. I really believe you, Jesus. Good, I know you're coming back tomorrow. I really believe. People have made those kinds of commitments. And when Jesus doesn't come back in 1988, or Jesus doesn't come back during the Gulf War, war during the millennium, or you know, doesn't come back in the feast of trumpets, the Jewish feast of trumpets in whatever years, or Jesus didn't come back when there was a blood moon, or Jesus didn't come back when all these things that, sometimes external signs, Jesus no man knows the day or the hour. When Jesus doesn't come back, what happens to again to whose peoples whose faith is fixed on a particular day? It must not be true. Or I don't believe in Jesus. You know, when I believe in Jesus, I believe He's coming back. I believe what First Thessalonians chapter four says about His return, and I want to live every day prepared for that return because I don't know when it's going to be. But it says he that has his hope, this hope, 1 John chapter 3, it says purifies himself. The not knowing. I don't live in a state of fear. Oh, no, Jesus might come back. I better not see that movie. I better not do this. I better not do that. I better. We don't have to be motivated by fear, but it should be what governs our lives. It's a hope. And it has a purifying effect on a believer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. Thank you, Lord, for this reminder. And Lord, I pray, too, that whatever is going on in this world, no matter how dire it may seem, Lord, help us to look up. Help us to live with that hope. Help us, Lord, to cling to the promises and to be unmovable in them. And Lord, help us as a a church family and as a body to encourage and comfort each other. And Lord, that we wouldn't be willfully ignorant of the things that your word says. Stir up a hunger in our heart, Lord, to know what your word teaches. Lord, I ask that you'd bless your people and it's in your mighty name, Lord Jesus, that I pray. Amen. God bless you guys. If you have any questions, need some prayer, you can talk to me or you can talk to... Eric as well.